now. Let's get to the scriptures. Let's get to the Bible. And I want to, if you have a, a, a device or if you have a Bible with you, I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. We get back to our series on the book of 1 Peter. And if you are a guest here this morning, um, it'd be helpful for you to know that we do a bi-weekly series on this book. And the reason for that is because bi-weekly we have what are called small groups or care groups where we pray together, we interact with each other uh, just informally, but we also take time to study and uh, deal with certain questions based upon this sermon series. Well, we're at a certain point in the series where we're taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We have been looking at a number of things in this book, but one of them is the certain qualities that we are to have as Christians to be not only faithful to the Lord, but effective witnesses in this world. And one essential quality, and it's a very countercultural quality that we're called to possess, is the quality of submissiveness, submission. And we're called, as we've seen in this series, that we're, uh, we're called to submit to those in government, government officials. We are called to uh, submit to those in authority over us in the workplace, but also submission relates to the marriage bond. And how does that, what does that look like? How is that supposed to be expressed? We're going to deal with that here this morning. So without further ado, 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 7. Likewise, wives be subject to your husbands, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that's where we're going to end our reading. And as I have sometimes said before in the introduction of sermons, it's, it's helpful sometimes to put ourselves in the place of those who are examining the Bible for the first time in their life and they're reading through various passages of the Bible and then they come to this and they're like, oh wow, you know, I mean the language here appears so antiquated, old, uh, outdated, uh, really uh, <laughs> years and years and years behind the times. But there's a lot of wisdom, actually, in this passage, and we need to, to understand some of the language here and not, you know, uh, inject into this passage modern views of, you know, the word submission or Sarah calling her husband Lord and all that. I mean, what is that all about? We can't inject modern views in this because if we do right away, then we set ourselves up for failure, actually, and we ultimately fail to appreciate a number of the principles that we find in this passage. So um, I'm going to bear that in mind in the preaching, and hopefully uh, this passage will not only be winsome to us, but also uh, 
hopefully uh, encouraging for us, particularly if uh, you are here this morning and you are married. And if you're not, don't check out because there's, there's a number of principles here for us um, as well, singles or even, even as uh, children. All right, so let's, um, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's talk about marriage. And particularly, um, let's, let's talk about Christian marriage. Now, I don't have to tell you that um, if you go online um, or you go to a physical bookstore, you go to a Barnes & Noble, more of a secular bookstore, or you can go online or a Christian bookstore, you will, you will find tons of information on marriage. And you will find tons of advice on how to have a healthy, vibrant, stimulating uh, marriage. But there is, there is one bit of advice that I want to bring to you this morning that gets at the heart of what can be a very healthy and vibrant marriage. And it's really, really simple. Husbands, love your wives. And wives, submit to your husbands. It's what I call the, the mutual kiss of sacrifice. You know, you can kiss someone, and that kiss cannot necessarily be reciprocal. You, can, you just know it. You know, it's not mutual. But here is what we find what's supposed to be a mutual, reciprocal kiss, what I call of sacrifice. The sacrifice of a husband in putting his wife before himself. Loving her. The Greek word is agape, which refers to the kind of self-sacrificial love that Jesus has for his own. So we've got to put, ourselves, uh, put our wives first as husbands, and as wives, you're called to submit to your husbands. The, as we've been looking at that word over the past number of weeks, it comes from the Greek word hupo tasso, hupo meaning under and tasso meaning to place or arrange. And so what a wife is doing in marriage is she's placing herself under the leading and the direction, willingly, of her husband as the church submits and follows the leading of Jesus as the head of the church. It's all simple, isn't it? And yet, if it's so simple, why is it so challenging? Why is it so hard to carry out in our marriages? I mean, so many times, husbands, why is it that, that we find it such a challenge to really love our wives in the way that we should? And not allow all kinds of other things to get in the way of the kind of singular love that we are to have for our wives. And wives, why is it so difficult for you ultimately to, on a regular basis, on a consistent basis, just, just follow the lead of your husband and follow the direction of your husband? Indeed, I'll turn that around. Why is it so easy for us to do this? Just to, 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 to point fingers. You know, I, I've, I remember particularly in a, in, a, in a marriage counseling session in a few churches ago where this couple was dealing with difficulty, and they were constantly doing this. They're constantly pointing fingers. And the husband basically saying, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love my wife, but if she would only be this person that I could respect, and if it could be easy for me to love on her and she wouldn't put all these barriers in the way, well, then maybe I could do what I'm supposed to do as a husband. And then the wife would turn around and she would say, well, I know I'm supposed to submit to my husband, but how can I submit to a husband who I feel really doesn't love me and doesn't sacrifice for me in any way? 
And I said to them very bluntly, I said, you know what, in listening to you, you two hate each other. You don't love each other. You actually hate each other. And they were silent. They didn't counter that assertion at all. They knew it. They knew it. So why, if, if, if the love of the husband and the submission of the wife is supposed to be so simple, why is it so difficult? And why is it easy to do this and this and this? And the reason why it's easy for us as husbands and wives to do this is because we got a problem with this. That is the human heart. Because you got two sinners married to each other. And the reason why we got a problem here is we got a problem over here. And you go, what do you mean over here? And what I'm talking about is the Garden of Eden. A lot of issues. We're going to get to the positives here in the passage. But I want to deal honestly with the challenges. That's what we do at Pathway. We get direct with each other, and let's be honest with each other, let's deal with the challenges, where the challenges ultimately stem from, from the Garden of Eden. So with that in mind, uh, if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to turn to Genesis. And we have two, just two verses in this passage. I want to set us up for something here. And this is going to be very interesting and um, hopefully illuminating for a number of you. Okay. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to move quickly through this. When you go to Genesis 3, this all occurs in the context of the fall. That is the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God. And in sinning against God, it affected all kinds of relationships around them, particularly the relationship that they had between each other, which was once a very intimate relationship. And after the fall, what God did as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, God placed a threefold curse the first on the serpent, and then upon Eve, and then upon Adam. And here's the curse that we find upon Eve. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Which makes you wonder, if Eve had never fallen into sin, would childbirth have been a pleasure, not a pain? Don't know. Something to think about. But there's one other thing here. One other result of the fall, he said, the Lord said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There have been many occasions in premarital counseling where I'll have a young couple before me and as we're going through biblical principles on marriage, I'll say, take a look at that passage and I'll say to the young woman, because it's in the context of Eve, what do you think that text is really talking about? What's, what's the desire for your husband anyway? What's that referring to? And, and she pauses for a moment and she says, well, uh, probably just affection for her husband or maybe sensual, sexual, physical desire for her husband. I said, okay, well, that's, that's natural and it should be natural within the marriage bond, right? But remember, this is in the context of the fall. So we need to look at the word desire, not positively or naturally, but but." Uh, negatively as a result of the fall so what do you how 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 should we interpret desire in that way because it's a reflection of bad desire and and then she she's quiet and then she's i don't know and that's because it's a hard passage and then it says the husband will rule over the wife. So what is that all about? Okay, moving on quickly. I think the answer is found not in Genesis chapter 3, but in Genesis chapter 4, where the same Hebrew words, uh, desire and rule, are used. It's the exact same Hebrew word and the same tense. 
So take a look at Genesis 4, verse 7. And the Lord said to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You remember it was Cain in the Bible who killed Abel. But before he killed Abel, sin was crouching at his door to make him do the unspeakable, and that is murder. And so... The Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. What do we mean, its desire for you? Its desire is to master you, to dominate you. But Cain, you must dominate sin. You must rule over that sin. So if we look at desire and rule in this way, then this is how I think we should interpret what we find going on with the curse with Eve. Eve, your desire as a result of the fall, is to, and we see this sometimes, to control your husband, to dominate your husband, and maybe that's because maybe he's doing this with you, or usually what happens is the reason why a a wife feels that she needs to take control in a relationship is because a husband is not leading in the relationship. One of the biggest factors with men in the church And one of the biggest struggles in the church is when men are not spiritually leading their wives, when they're not taking them consistently to worship, when they're not reading with them, when they're not praying with them, when they're not feeding the souls of their wives and nurturing them in Jesus. And when that happens, a woman feels like, okay, if you're not going to lead, somebody's got to lead in this family, somebody's got to lead in this relationship, and somebody's got to lead with the kids. But a woman typically doesn't like to do that, but she falls into this situation where she feels she needs to control, sometimes even manipulate. The husband, naturally, as a man, typically doesn't like the idea of that. He's frustrated with himself, but he doesn't like the fact that his wife is dominating or manipulating. And so what does he do? He dominates her. He rules over her, even sometimes abusively. When you look at it this way, you've got to go, wow, there's a lot of wisdom in the Bible. Welcome to modern-day marriage. But here's the thing. When the gospel enters a person's life, when Jesus enters a person's life in a living, meaningful way, the gospel and Jesus changes everything, including marriage. So that when Jesus is at the center of your marriage, then what you find that as a husband, although albeit imperfectly, you start to love your wife actually in the way that you should, in the way that Jesus loves the church. And as a wife, you learn over time to willingly follow the lead of your husband as the church submits to Christ. And that, my friends, is what Peter encourages here in this passage. There's seven verses here. Look at verses 1 through 6. And if you could put the first Peter passage back up there again, if you would. All right. We're going to follow through with this for for a little bit, and then we're going to deal with verse 7, dealing with the responsibility of husbands. All right. Likewise, follow along with me here. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. By the way, if you look at verse 5, also um, you see the word... um, Uh, in reference to women in the past submitting to their own husbands. The word submitting there and and the word subject or subjection in verse 1, they're the same word in the original language, so it's referring to the same thing. 
Likewise, wives, be subject, that is, arrange yourself under the leading and the care of your husband. Wives, submit to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What's that getting at there? I want to submit to you that what you have here is a situation that you find in the church still today. You have a Christian wife and you have a non-Christian husband. You say, well, why is that? Well, probably what happened here is that as the gospel is going out into the world in the early church, people are coming under the influence of the gospel, and sometimes you find it that the wife converts and the man does not. That's not unusual. Because oftentimes women have a certain spiritual sensitivity that the man does not. Because men tend to be very autonomous at times. They want to rule themselves. Wives have a different nature about them. So what happens, not always, but sometimes what will happen is that the wife will be converted to Jesus, but the man will not. And that's what you have here. And the advice that Peter gives to wives here is not to say to yourself, well, okay, now I'm a Christian and my husband is not, so I guess I have the right to leave him. He says, no, you don't. What I encourage you to do is to remain true to your husband, remain married to your husband, and more than that, you remain submissive to your husband, which is a huge challenge when, when you have a divided relationship there, right? It's a huge challenge. And you would think that a wife would not have to submit to her husband because he's a non-Christian now. But you notice here in 1 Peter, it's very interesting that there is a call on three occasions for us as Christians to submit in less than ideal situations or circumstances. Submit to the government, as we saw a few weeks ago, even when the government officials are not ruling justly. Submit to your boss in the workplace, even if your boss is unfair to you. And now, wives, submit to yourself to your husbands, even if he is a non-Christian. That is hard. That is hard. But here's the thing. This is why Peter says, stick it out in your marriage. Because if you as a wife continue to submit to your husband and you have a giant and a, quiet, a gentle and quiet spirit around him, you never know that your husband may respond, not to verbal nagging about Jesus, but by observing your quiet disposition and your love for Christ, he might in turn, in time, be converted to Jesus. Had a wonderful discussion with an Iranian Christian um, this past week. And he said to me a few years ago, when, we were, when my wife and I were living in Iran, my wife became a Christian. But I, I, I did not convert to the time that my wife did. And she started talking to me about Jesus. I became very agitated. And I said, as a Muslim, I said, you know what? Now I have the right to divorce you because now you are a Christian. But the wife didn't want that, and ultimately, deep down, he did not want that. So his wife, if I may put it bluntly like this, kind of started to shut up about Jesus. She just was kind of quiet. She didn't, she didn't want to agitate the situation. And as this man observed his wife and continued to live with this wife, and she continued to deal gently with him, after a couple of years, what happened is that he actually converted to Jesus. And here he, and he's, he's, he's carrying the gospel out to various individuals 
among Afghanis and Iranians in, in Abbotsford. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So that, that is an example of what we have here in this passage. But as we move on, how does a wife win her husband to Christ? How does a wife express her submission to her husband? And what we see here in this passage is by means of her attitude and her actions. The attitude is one of respect, and the action is one of pure conduct. And the way that she expresses both attitude and action is by the way that she carries herself as a woman, particularly in a modest way. We read in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, for instance, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's just dealing principally with the matter of modesty, right? Now, there's, there's some, some, some culturally conditioned matters here, like, you know, the way that women braided their hair years ago, or, let's say, the wearing of gold jewelry. That means if you're wearing gold jewelry this morning or you have braided hair, well, am I suddenly immodest? No, there's, there's, there's differences in history and culture. We have to deal with the principle, and the principle is modesty. How do you define modesty? It's like, a, it's, it's like what one congressman in the state said one time regarding pornography. I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Well, sometimes you look at modesty. How do you really define that? Well, it's hard to define it, but you kind of know it when you don't see it. So it has to deal with the matter of the heart. So if a wife wants to win her husband and have a thriving relationship with her husband, it's a way of not putting yourselves out there to be noticed by others, but it's, it's developing the inner spiritual qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit, one that is very sensitively attuned to Jesus, but also the role that you have as a wife. Is that easy? No. But then Peter goes on to give an example. He says this, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, husbands, um, don't go away from this, uh, saying to your wife on the way home from worship, you know, I kind of like that uh, verse there. I would like to be called Lord. Yeah, that would be, you are so quiet. So, but, no, really, I mean, this is, that's not what it's talking about. What, the, what, what Peter's talking about here is just the kind of, this is, again, this is cultural, but it's the kind of respect that Sarah had for her husband, Abraham. And then he, he ends by saying this, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's like, what is that talking about? And I'll, I'll just say this. Um, it, is, it is not unusual sometimes, especially if marriages are not good, for a wife to have a certain amount of fears that she carries with her or insecurities. But if a, if a husband loves his wife and cares for her, ministers to her spirit, provides for her, puts her in a context of security, then you find over time, as a woman and as a wife, those fears and those insecurities that you once had tend to gradually dissipate. And that puts you in a very 
comforting and uh, secure place. So we need to move on to verse 7. So I want to say this. You may be um, a woman here and a wife whose husband is not a Christian. And that is the kind of challenge that Peter is bringing out in the opening verses of this passage. That is not easy. You may be um, a wife whose husband is a Christian, but perhaps he is uh, emotionally distant, emotionally detached, somewhat emotionally unresponsive, or perhaps at times verbally abusive, or just simply um, hard to live with. Um, and, you know, if, if you find yourself in this spot, here, here, here's, here's some biblical advice. First of all, um, search your heart and ask yourself if there is anything in you that is, even though the responses of the husband are not legitimate or biblical, ask yourself the question whether or not there's things that you have said or things that you're doing or you have a certain disposition that is that is creating the kind of responses, at least contributing in some way the kind of responses of your husband. In addition to that, once you've done that, ask for the Lord's grace. Seek counsel. That may be a pastor. That may be a ward elder or elders. Um, uh, it may not be the pastor or the elders. It could be a fellow woman, an older woman who is a mentor, who is mature, who's rooted in the scriptures, who is wise, who is discerning, and give you the kind of counsel that would be helpful to you. Um, pray for the Holy Spirit. Your marriage is not going to change apart from the sovereign descent of the Spirit in your marriage. And then pray specifically for your husband, that God would change his heart, that he would rekindle this flame, perhaps, that you once saw in your husband. And then pray to the Lord and ask him to sculpt your husband more and more into the likeness simply of, of Christ. Because that's, that's what he needs. He needs the spirit and he has, needs to become more and more a reflection of the relationship of Christ to the church and his relationship with you. And then, and then finally this, and, and here's a word also of encouragement. Never underestimate how the gospel and how the Lord can change your relationship. How does, it, how does the book of Ephesians put it? It says, uh, for God is able to do immeasurably more than what you ask or imagine according to his power that works within you. That's great encouragement. You know, that's great encouragement. Rest upon the Lord. Seek him. Now, one final thing. I want to draw your attention to um, verse 7. I want to read that now. Let's talk about husbands for a moment. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, if you take a look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, there seems to be a little bit of what I would call inequity here. Because the reason is, very simply, you have six verses devoted to the wife, only one to the husband. 
On the other hand, if you go to the classic passage on marriage from Ephesians chapter 5, that's switched around. You've got nine verses devoted to husbands and only three to wives. So it kind of evens itself out. Just want to bring that out. Okay. Wives are going to submit to their husbands, as we've seen in the opening six verses. They need husbands who are going to know them, who are going to love them, who are going to nurture them, who are going to cherish them. First Peter says that husbands are to live with their wives, according to this text, in an understanding way. You know what it says in the original language? Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. That's literal, according to knowledge. What does that mean? It means husbands, we need to really know our wives. Now, you, you can hear that and you can, uh, as husbands, you say, oh, I know my wife pretty well. I mean, I've been married to her for, what, 10, 20, 30 years. In fact, my wife and I know each other so well, and you will experience this in your marriage because it's a reflection of becoming one flesh in marriage, you will realize that many times, don't you have this right, where you, as a husband, you begin to say something and then your wife finishes the sentence for you because she knows where you're going. You know, it's almost like you can read each other's minds. But that's not what Peter's getting at here. Peter is not talking about that kind of knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of the heart. Husbands, how well have you peered deeply into here? How well do you know the hearts of your wives? And how sensitive are you to her vulnerabilities? To her vulnerabilities. In the language of our passage, husbands, are we um, honoring our wives and respecting our wives as, as uh, what the pastor calls a weaker vessel? Now, if you have a new international version of the Bible, it will refer to the wife as a weaker partner. I want to suggest to you that there's a better translation that's found in the ESV. It's weaker vessel. And the reason why vessel is a good word, because it conjures up an image. And what is that? It's the image of, and this is where you have to put this in its cultural context, a lot of homes during Peter's day had various vessels, clay vessels. And some were big and some were very thick, and the big thick ones could hold gallons and gallons of water or wine. But there were also, so they were very durable, they were very thick. There were also other vessels that were smaller and that were thinner and more delicate. So when Peter refers to the wife as a weaker vessel, man, this is not a put-down. This is just a recognition of created differences between men and women, which, by the way, if you've been following what's going on in the culture, is something that is being undermined in a big way. The biological differences between men and women. The Bible asserts biological differences between men and women and has exalts them as something, not something we should be ashamed of, something beautiful and something also, by the way, in the marriage bond to be understood. So in the marriage bond, the wife is referred to a weaker vessel. Not an inferior vessel, but a weaker vessel. And, and the thing is, is that husbands need to be considered considerate of um, how the woman, generally speaking, is a delicate, uh, a delicate creature and needs to pastor her according to that. 
You know, um, there, are, there are wives that, um, when the Bible says delicate, it's not a put-down, because there are wives who, on many occasions, are smarter than their husbands. If you do an IQ test, she probably do, uh, you know, pull much higher grade on the IQ test than her husband. There are wives who are more socially aware than their husbands. There are wives who, and don't we know this as husbands, if you have small kids in the family, wives generally to be incredibly more patient than their husbands. Wives can oftentimes be more spiritual or moral than their husbands. But wives can sometimes be weaker than their husbands, I think, generally speaking, in a physical way. I mean, I suppose if you put a wife against uh, most husbands and they get into an arm wrestling competition, she'll usually lose. That's not a put-down, it's just a reality. And sometimes wives can be more fragile than their husbands, particularly as they, the, the issues relating to their cycle and so forth. As husbands, we know that. So these, these are just created differences. And as husband, we have to understand those created differences, and we can't treat our wives like men. But we need to treat them according to how God created them in terms of their delicate, fragile, and with that, beautiful nature that offsets many times our harshness and sometimes our just emotional flatness at, at times, right? Husbands, be considerate of that. We owe this to our wives, and that too, for two reasons. To consider it our, to be very considerate of our wives. And the reason why Peter says that as husbands we need to consider our wives, number one, listen carefully to this. Because husbands, our wives are our redemptive equals. What do I mean by that? That means when Jesus died and he shed his blood, he shed his blood just as much for your wife as he did for you. And that's how God treats your wife. He treats your wife as a loved child of God. As you're a son in Christ, she is a daughter in Christ. And you and your wife, according to the book of Ephesians, share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. And so if you share these things, and the Lord honors your wife as an expression of the Lord's love for your wife, you are to mimic that or imitate that toward your wife by being caring for her and soft toward her. And Peter ends by saying this, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know what the assumption is here? That, that you are praying with your wife. That you and your wife are spending time in the things of the Lord. And husbands, if you're not loving your wives, and wives, if you find it difficult, therefore, to submit to your husbands, then you can guarantee that your spirituality in your marriage is suffering. But when husbands give their lives to their wives, and they love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. When you have that basically in place, and none of us fulfills this perfectly, we get that, right? But when that basically is in place, then what you find is your spiritual union with Christ and with each other, which is the most important thing for your marriage, is flourishing. And you're growing in that. 
And there is nothing more beautiful and nothing more productive and fruitful for your marriage than to be totally close in Christ and in your spiritual life and your love for each other. So, let's end with this. There is no marriage here we can guarantee each other in this, right? There's no marriage here that is perfect. Because the fact of the matter is, you got two sinners married to each other. But I want to leave you this. There is hope. There is always hope for our marriages because we have the gospel and we have Jesus Christ. And like every church, some of us have good marriages and some of us have struggling marriages, but... As husbands and wives, no matter what we are facing, whenever we're at or what challenges we are facing in our marriage, as fallen human beings, we share this one thing. It's going to sound very simple, but we share Jesus. And it's this very Jesus who says to us as husbands and wives, whatever we are facing, come. Come to me. Come to me for grace. Come to me for forgiveness. Cry out to me if you have to for grace, and come to me so that I can take you where you are at and bring you to where you need to be. And trust me that if you do that, I will not stand idly by, but I'll come alongside of you and I will bless you. And that's good news. That's the gospel. And that's good news that we need through our marriages also to give to a broken world, a world with broken relationships and troubled marriages. Let's, let's do that, shall we? And let's, toward that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, oh God, Lord, we pray that you will bless our relationships here, and we pray, oh God, also, that you particularly would bless our marriages. Lord, we pray, as many things could be said and prayed about, we pray, oh God, for this one fundamental thing, that you would help us as husbands simply to love our wives in the way that Jesus loves the church, self-sacrificially, giving his very life for her. And as wives, in response, O oh Lord, we pray that as wives, we would be able, O oh God, to follow the lead of our husbands and to encourage him in his walk as a man of God and that you will bless our relationships, O oh God, and that they would mirror just that perfect, beautiful relationship between Jesus and his church. So, Father, we bring this to you, and we know that when we bring our prayers to you, you will answer them. We know you will, in your time and in your way, because this is a prayer that is offered in the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.